0: Welcome to Arts Alive, focusing on the working artists of California's Central Coast. I'm your host, Brian Asher Alhadeff. Joining me in the studio today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Michael Novak, Artistic Director of Orchestra Novo in San Luis Obispo and Music Director of the Santa Maria Philharmonic. Michael continues to be an active violist and conductor in the Hollywood recording industry. Michael Novak, thank you for being here today. We're really excited to know more about you and your journey. Thank you. Great to
1: be here, Brian. Thank you.
0: How long have you lived in the Central Coast, and how did you go about
1: coming here? Getting here. Well, uh, in 1984, I was uh, chosen to be the conductor of the San San Luis Obispo Symphony. And for four years, I commuted up from L.A. every week for rehearsals. Wow. Wow. And then at the end of four years, uh, the house that I was living in in Pacific Palisades uh, was being sold. So I had to find another place to live. And uh, very wise people said, well, why don't you move here and then just drive there? Nice. Best move I ever made. So that was in 1988, and I've been here ever since. So I still, to this day, drive to LA to work down in the studios. Wow and uh, I'm always glad to be home.
0: And how much of that work in the studios is viola versus conducting, or is it?
1: Uh, mostly, mostly playing, mostly viola, uh, but I have a couple of composers that always request me as a conductor.
0: And where were you, where were you originally from? I'm from Rhode Island. i born in Providence, Rhode Island. And how did your journey take you to the good old-fashioned California?
1: Uh, well, I kept going, migrating west. Like Horace Greeley says, go west, young man. Yeah. So uh, I started my musical life in the uh, public schools of Rhode Island, Warwick, Rhode Island. Bravo. Uh, when they actually had a violin teacher come to our school. And I, I don't know if it was once a week or twice a week, Mr. Cuddy would come, uh-huh. and we'd have group violin. Yeah. And that's what got me started. Um, And then I went my first year of college to Boston University. It was close and I got a good um, (laughs) price because my parents had both gone to Boston University so it was really easy for them to pay for my education. Nice. Uh, After a year, I transferred to Indiana University and that was probably the greatest move I could have made. So I was uh, fortunate to run into the incredible William Primrose, the great violist. My hero. My hero my hero. And um, I was playing violin at the time, but when I met William Primrose, I said, I want to switch to viola. Wow. And so I had a violin teacher at that time who played both, Mm -hmm. and he switched me over to viola. And at the end of that year, which was my sophomore year of college, I went up to William Primrose and said, I would like very much to study with next year. I'll bet. And without an audition or anything, he said, well, why don't you come to the uh, Music Academy of the West this summer? I have an opening. Uh someone canceled out at the last minute and I mean just with weeks to go um, I was invited to go there and so that's how I got to come to California for the first time.
0: My goodness, what an exciting, uh, when you just said uh, William Primrose, all of my entire discography at home just opened up the the, the recording of the the Mendelssohn uh, octet with Heifetz, uh, mm-hmm. the Dvorak uh, uh, chamber pieces with Rubenstein and Heifetz. I mean, he was just part of that that sort of rat pack of... of the A-team. Of, you know, the A-team.
1: Well, I think he was the best of the A-team. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Heifetz got all the attention, but Primrose... Primrose was the all-star in my eyes, and if you yeah. really pay attention to what he could do on the instrument, mm-hmm. it surpassed Heifetz, really.
0: And he was all viola, no violin, right?
1: He started on the violin. Uh-huh. His father owned an Amati violin, a viola, a Amati viola. Uh, Primrose wanted to play that, and his father said, you can't play the viola until you become a virtuoso on the violin, mm-hmm. and then I'll give you that viola. And so he was a virtuoso on the violin. There was actually a recording somewhere of Primrose playing the Mendelssohn Concerto.
0: Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, it's it's just so fascinating to hear a story of a, of a professional violist that started off as a, as a violinist. But it sounds to me like you had a passionate connection to the viola, which is which romanced you away from the violin. And well, as Primrose would say, I saw the light. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How do you uh, in in your journey uh, as a musician here in the Central Coast and in, Hol- in Hollywood? Uh, when we're engaged uh, to, to create, we often have a start date and a deadline. And so those, of course, give us boundaries. But within the, within, inside of that space, how do you improve the quality of your creative work? How do you know when it's ready to share with the public? What sort of landmarks uh, does even that question bring to mind?
1: Well, I think you answered it yourself by just saying uh, the, there's a concert date coming up. <laughs> so being a perfectionist as I am, I'm never ready. There's always something that can be improved upon. Right. Uh, And when you start listening and you start hearing things that are not going as well as they should, uh, that kind of directs your attention in a certain way. Um, And then as those things get improved, um, then we've made some headway, and we're getting closer to that deadline. Right. Sure. Uh, And now it's different. I mean, certainly, as you know, on the Central Coast, we have a different breed of of musician up here. They're not always uh, 100% professional players. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are amateurs, many of them are amateurs, and so they have other occupations. And they don't perform or practice as much as uh, the studio folks that I work with. I mean, we get, in the studios, we get a piece of music we've never seen before now.
0: And it has to be done in a couple of hours, Well,
1: sometimes it's done in 10 minutes. If you're doing something with John Williams, you get the clock starts at 10 o'clock, and he's starting to conduct at 10 o'clock. Yeah. And by 10 after 10, you're recording that first piece of music. Wow. And who knows how hard it is. I mean, they finally learned that with computers, you can actually send PDFs or uh, that you can look at the music ahead of time. Right. So we can now look at the score, the viola parts. Uh Uh-huh. I can look at the tuba part if I wanted to. Sure. You can see all the things, and so, ah, good thing I have this because I don't want to embarrass myself. But one's brain uh, works a different way when you're sight reading all the time. Mm -hmm. You learn patterns and things like that and your hands become more adept at just flying around.
0: And, you know, forgive me if if this is a stupid question because it just sort of just comes out of what you've just said, but the advent of technology and where it may make you feel better that you can see the music ahead of time, does that have any side effects to the way it used to be done with maybe all the stress that people brought into a studio session? I got to get this done in some amount of time, or they're never going to hire me again. And has- Well, it's, it's
1: interesting because we adapt. We've adapted. Yeah. So when I first started um, in the studios, all the parts were handmade. I mean, they were just a person with a pencil right. created the viola part yeah. and then they Xeroxed it and they passed it out to all the different stands um, now half the time you were in the, there people were correcting wrong notes mm-hmm. you couldn't see it, you couldn't tell we weren't sure whether that was an F flat or an F natural What is that, how was that and so there would be a lot of questions Right. so a movie that now takes a day and a half because we have computers to make the music mm-hmm. Um, Pro Tools and all these different um, technical things where it's all, you know, you can just see it right away. I I forgot the two. There are two. You probably know to make parts you have...
0: Oh, Sibelius and uh, Finale. uh, Finale, Right. 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 So
1: one uh, studio will use Sibelius and others will use Finale or an arranger will do it. But, I mean, there's a person that does a part... um, divider where you can actually see what your part is and you make sure that you have a bar rest at the bottom of the page to turn the page. Uh-huh, so right. they do that kind of thing. I mean, it's like an old edition would be made. Yeah. But it's it's pretty amazing. So there's no time. All the notes, are, I would say 99% of the time now, are good. Yeah. There are hardly any wrong notes unless the machine wasn't sure what it was, Right. or the right. programmer wasn't sure.
0: Interesting how in, in musical publishing, the machines do make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, they can. Well, and the other thing that I've, you've probably seen this too now, and it'll probably become more widespread
1: as time goes by, uh, the, the pedaled, uh, when you put a, your foot on a pedal and it changes the page on a screen. I, I've had some players that I work with, you probably have seen them around too, um, they don't use the real part. They're actually using a a part that's on a on a computer, and right. they can turn the page with their foot, mm-hmm. a pedal, and so you don't need to, to take the time to turn the page, or somebody doesn't have to reach over and turn it. Right. Everybody can just do it. So it's technology is always um, you know coming up with something new. On the other hand, um, we're working less because of it. True. So what would have taken a week for to make a movie now maybe can be done in a day and a half.
0: Yeah. So yeah, those it, kinds
1: of things. When also, in, when I started, they did have the big reels. the big So that you would stop in the middle of a thing and say, excuse me, you have to change reels. And you would look in the booth, and this guy would take this huge reel of film. Yeah, well, it was recording the, the notes. Oh. And they'd pull it off, and they'd put another one up. And then they'd say, okay, start at that place again. And then later they cut it, and they actually put tape on there, and that's how uh-huh. they spliced it together. yeah. It's amazing. Now it's all pro tools and you know you can just do all that sort of thing. Right, mm-hmm. right.
0: No, that's 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 really fascinating to see to just ha- ha- have lived in a short period of time and seen so much change because of the advent of technology.
1: Well, and that's what gives a lot of people an opportunity that they don't used to have, that didn't used to have is that you can do stuff at home now in GarageBand, and you can come up with a song, and you can have an arrangement, and you can have strings, mm-hmm. air air quotes here, strings, right. and winds, <laughs> trumpets, whatever, <laughs> and you have your whole
0: orchestra, and you know, I mean. And how much Hollywood has transitioned from live musicians in a recording studio to one guy in his garage? A lot. A lot. A lot,
1: mm-hmm.
0: So that's a lot of lost work, and um, but also a new industry that's opened up to... Uh, a new a new kind of uh, career as well. Uh, when you had mentioned the challenges working with amateurs and so much of what we do, uh, you know, uh, we're essentially colleagues. You have the Santa Maria Philharmonic and the uh, Orchestra Novo. I work with Opera San Luis Obispo, the Lompoc Pops. And uh, I feel as though a lot of our work ha- is involved with creating a social experience just as much as it is for... Um, uh, ach- achieving an artistic goal would you agree with that or how, how would you
1: oh, oh absolutely I think it's um, it's uh, <clears throat> very much a family affair I think that uh, I like um, I liked the weekly rehearsals I used to have I, I, I was always I hated it because I had to turn down work in LA right. I lost a lot of work in LA because of coming up here for Thursday night rehearsals Sure, but also, I always knew that we had Thursday night rehearsals. Right. I mean, that's why somebody like the Vocal Arts or, or Tom with the Master Chorale, they meet regularly. Mm-hmm. And so they become very, very close as a family of people. You work on the piece, as we were saying earlier, because they're amateurs, um, we have to be much more patient. The mm-hmm. progress is slower, but you do notice the pro- progress. It's right. much bigger progress, uh, yeah. especially as we get closer to the concert. Sure um, Originally They may not Sight read the music Like we do In the Hollywood Sure And it has Those
0: first rehearsals Or two are kind of Questionable Didn't you ever want to Just f- farm those out To an assistant uh, You know We got we got ten rehearsals Before this first concert I'm only going to do Eight No <laughs> I, I, I love the whole process I yeah. mean it's just I, I love I love the whole
1: Prospect of Watching it uh, Just mutate And get better and better It's kind of like Watching a, a child, grow exactly. Yeah,
0: no, that's wonderful, and how does that or a uh, garden grow? How does that play into your uh, repertoire selection um, now? It, depend- it when I thought talk- into it. Sure. You know, when I talked to Jill Anderson about Canzona, she was talking about how how diverse she can be. She can program in in Tahitian and and in Korean, but then when she compared uh, my world in the opera and how I'm sort of linked to the top. 10 pieces because that's what's going to draw in an audience. Uh, Where do you sort of land in in the world of orchestra with repertoire selection and given the challenges of producing music here on the Central Coast?
1: Good question. Um, And, I mean, that is a very good question. Uh, I have always been sort of experimental and not mainstream with my programming until we got to 9-11. Hmm. And then I realized that Hinamith wasn't going to satisfy the people that were coming to the concert, or Shostakovich. As much as I wanted to do those pieces, or Zanakis, or, you know, Ludoslavsky, Bartok, there's many great pieces out there, Sibelius symphonies, some dark pieces. I mean, very, very interesting work, Prokofiev works. The whole world of Bruckner's virtually unexplored. Unless you're living in Germany. Right. Um... Or if you're in a big orchestra like the Philadelphia Orchestra, they do Bruckner. Sure. The guy from Germany will come over and conduct it. (laughs) But um, I felt that instead of—I had to sort of coddle the audience. I had to pacify them. Their reason for coming was different. They needed to be calmed down. There was a lot of anxiety going on. It's kind of like what's going on right now. There's a lot of anxiety going on. And so—
0: we need to feel better. Is that maybe we're, we're coming here for a, an escape? Is that perhaps well, what changed it?
1: I think music has always been that. Right. I think that's the wonderful thing about it. I, I've been doing a podcast these past few months called "Music So Sweet," mm-hmm. uh, personal reflections. It's basically I've gone, I've taken a composer every other week or so, or once a month, and um, examined some of that composer's works. So. Mm-hmm. I started with Bach, and um, you know, did some beautiful arias from cantatas and things like that. So, uh, Dominus Deus from the uh, B minor Mass, uh-huh. uh, Brandenburg concertos. Then we went to Samuel Barber, which was really fun to do because I knew Samuel Barber as a human, living human being. Oh, I didn't know him personally, but he was alive yeah. when I was alive, and so sure. um, there were a lot of. Things in common with my life in his life,
0: and that was your second episode, right? Barber, yeah. So you went from Bach to Barber.
1: Yeah, I was kind of going That's alphabetical. Great. I didn't want to do that, but <laughs> I, I wanted to just jump around a little bit. What I loved is that I st- when you start investigating these things. So, for instance, I got I started with Knoxville, summer of 1915, mm-hmm. and uh, Don Upshaw's performance. On, I do these are all YouTube performances. So um, lovely, she's singing. Pictures of Knoxville in 1915 were there on the screen, so you can see that. Oh. And the words go by, too. So now people are seeing it, they're hearing it, and they're looking at t- the time. So you, all of a sudden, there's no COVID going on. You're living in Knoxville summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the, the Barber Violin Concerto, and I had an interview with my friend Anna Kiko Myers, the great violinist, mm-hmm. who's played this piece hundreds of times and introduced it all around the world. Yeah. She was a great interview, talking about the piece. I did the Barber Daggio for Strings, and I was unbelievably fortunate because with this so much time you have the ability to explore when you're running around all the time you don't have the chance to just sit back and really learn and, and find out what's out there so of course YouTube's got all these things. The Barbara Adagio for Strings was premiered by Toscanini the string version mm-hmm. and the NBC Symphony in 1938 they have that performance it was wow. NBC National Broadcasting company or corporation. And uh, they recorded all their p- performances of Tuscanini. So a beautiful performance, not to be related with uh, Platoon or Princess <laughs> Diane's death or the you know the right. invasion of whatever mm. Afghanistan or Iraq. And um, but a piece of music by itself.
0: And you know in Tuscanini we, we, we revere as, as as someone who had real personal interpretive ideas so i am just hearing that that recording is out there and you know knowing how commercial the sound of Barber's adagio s- sings sounds like you know uh it, it, i can't wait to hear what Toscanini did with that i mean we no, associate Toscanini with aida and you know beethoven but not necessarily a contemporary composer true, true.
1: and uh, that's true um he always got lost in Copeland if there was a, <laughs> a you know three eight bar a five eight and he couldn't, couldn't do it <laughs> right. but but what you love about this connection too, nineteen thirty eight so you listen to the recording and you'll you'll listen um the violas sound incredible uh-huh. beautiful voicing beautiful, beautiful, aha uh-huh, I said who was in that section, William Primrose no.
0: So in that recording, Primrose was a member of the NBC symphony. He
1: sat second chair to Carlton Cooley. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and you can hear it. I mean, there's no question, wow, that's a beautiful viola sound. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things, they get they get me very excited about yeah. contemporary music is is sense that Barbara was alive when I was alive. That's mm-hmm. it, my contemporary. But also uh, the, the history of it and, and where it's gone and where it will go and how that affects my interpretation of things as well.
0: Yeah, that that's fascinating. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the uh, your, your experience with auditions. Um, and I'm sure that comes into a number of, uh, of different uh, uh, manifestations. But the one that I think about is, what if somebody wants to be a soloist in an orchestra that you conduct? What are you looking for? How do you audition for something like that?
1: Well, you know, you probably get this all the time. Somebody will send in a Recording of something, a right. disc or a CD or something that we're a file to listen to. And um, it's hard to decide. I mean, it's hard to make a decision about soloists. Uh, a lot of the times, much of the time, these are people that I know or have been recommended to me by people that I know. Right. That would say, you know, Robert Thies, uh, do you know that guy? Sure. No, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know him until two people said, you've got to get Robert Thies. Yeah,
0: Robert and I did Rachmaninoff, too, in Whittier. <laughs> and okay, he, he's...
1: Well, he's a Rachmaninoff guy. Yeah, that's right. And uh, know, he did the, the third concerto with us at the symphony years ago. Oh, that's no 30,000 notes. Yeah. And he memorized it all. Wow. I mean, he, so that's the kind of situation. Now, will I have Robert back? Of course I will. And other people recommend people, and they say, you really got to get this person. Mm-hmm. Or it's somebody I work with in the studios. Yeah. And there's a really great number of people that are just virtuosos.
0: And what you've just described is absolutely accurate. And it's, As far as I, as I know as a conductor and a musician, that's how we do a lot of our business. Knowing that as a young person who is essentially, let's say, 21 years old and nobody right now, how do they... What what can they grasp understanding that relationship to sort of get ahead? You know, like how do they take that knowledge that, well, gosh, he doesn't know me and I don't know this guy and I haven't made a mark yet. What am I supposed to do to get known?
1: Boy, that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think it goes back to everything. Um it's uh being in the right place at the right time and having someone recommend you. Mm-hmm. Someone that has heard you and thinks a lot about you. I mean, my career got started in between um, Boston, Univer- Indiana University, and L.A., because um, I moved to L.A. to conduct in the early 70s. Um, my first year out of college in 1972, I went to the Dallas Symphony. And I got there because the conductor of the Dallas Symphony, Angel Brusiloff, was visiting Indiana University and conducting the orchestra that I was in. Uh-huh. And he was stand partner of Joseph Gingle, the great teacher there in the Cleveland Orchestra. And so, one evening we had a party of string players and I was invited and um, basically he went around the room and asked everybody what they wanted to do mm-hmm. and so well I want to play in a major orchestra yeah I want to be a soloist or oh, I want to be a chamber music player and I said nothing you don't want to know he, he said he wants to be a conductor mm-hmm. so he says to me immediately okay who starts Beethoven's fifth who's playing in the orchestra I went mm, strings right he says, yeah, strings and two clarinets. Huh, I didn't remember the two clarinets part. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, well, who starts kindertoten Leader? Because I had been working on that for a school project. Right. He said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he was c- completely honest. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, so uh, tomorrow uh, we're doing Firebird. I'm going to go out in the audience and hear the orchestra. I want you to conduct at the dress rehearsal.
0: Wow, what, a, what an opportunity. Right,
1: so from that moment on, I... S- didn't sleep I stayed up drinking coffee and taking no-dos and I had a toothache I remember that and by the end of the, by the end of the day when this was it in the evening and we had drinks and everything it's like oh my god yeah. I got to learn this firebird the Fire, entire yeah the, it's no, a
0: big deal no walk in the park mixed meter everybody in uh, pandemonium at times <laughs> and uh, I remember my hands were shaking probably because of coffee but I was
1: like nervous yeah. and uh I got up, he said, I'm going to go out and Michael was going to conduct the orchestra and I, I think I was very fast with the tempo because I was nervous and I was right. coughed up. But um, when he came back to the podium, he said, he's right, that's the correct tempo. I mean, I was just, really? <laughs> okay. Nice. A week later, I got a letter from Andrew Bruslov saying, would you like to come to Dallas and be my assistant conductor? Wow. So that was that start. Mm-hmm. And I went to Dallas. Then the next year, I got a... Job out in LA, the YMF debut orchestra to conduct. Oh, sure. Yeah, it was a wonderful training ground for a young conductor. Beautiful yeah. p- position. Um, and after that, I stayed and um, I needed to work as a violist. Mm-hmm. And he called, Angel called up the leading string contractor in LA, and s- they were friends at Curtis. He said, I want you to hire this kid to play viola. Mm-hmm. So it's a long wait from what you asked, but it, it tells you that people make their careers by helping out other people, too, or because of the help of other people.
0: And also just being open to what the road may hold.
1: You never know, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a strong word of advice here because when I got the job to go to LA, I was still in Dallas, and I, I didn't know what to do because Dallas was doing well as a good orchestra, um, and I wasn't sure whether I was gonna want to go to LA. <clears throat> So I asked the librarian who was a viola player, and I said, Mike, what shall I do? And he said, just think of it this way. When you're standing in a doorway, all you can see is straight ahead. But until you walk out in through the doorway, do you even know that there's a left or a right? Uh-huh. Take that step and then see what's out there. So I've never forgotten that. That sounds like great advice. Well, I have kicked myself for opportunities that I've not Taken that step and should have done it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, I uh, say, what the heck? Let's try and see what's going to happen. You know.
0: Yeah, and 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 what an opportunity that was that was presented. And and my my stepdad uh, always used to say, opportunity fa- or luck favors those the prepared, and that has a lot to do with it too. You have to be prepared for that opportunity to be ready for you, right? And and to move with it. Um, what's now? You talked a little bit about the podcast that you're uh, involved in right now, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, feels like a product of COVID-19. Yeah. What else is is happening uh, during this time, and how are you feeling? Uh, uh, your your natural massive river of creative energy, it has to go somewhere. COVID just can't stop it, right? Where is that going for you? How is that? How are you evolving and 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 getting outside? Uh, and surviving during Well, this. it's very hard, as you know, because we're, we're
1: geared. We're, we're like athletes. You know, if if you can't play basketball and you're a basketball player, what do you got? I mean, so you shoot hoops in your yard all day, and yeah. Right. But I mean, <coughs> we're going to see that with football this year. Same thing. We're athletes. I mean, we are athletes, and mm-hmm. that's why everybody needs their snacks at their rehearsals, because you're using a lot of energy. we are playing a lot, um, are you
0: exploring new repertoire as a violist, as a conductor, or um, how are you planning in, in, in sort of...
1: I'm listening to a lot of music. I'm, I'm uh-huh. a student again, and I really like it. I'm, I'm just so happy, mm-hmm. and that really takes me into what I love is to just study. I mean, I like to learn. I love to learn. Yeah. And the more I know, the better I feel about, as you were saying, prepared. Right. If
0: opportunities open up, you say, well, yeah, I think I could do this. So I know a lot of our, our colleagues are probably going to be listening, and they would love to know that in addition to the Toscanini recording of the Barber adagio for strings, what else is on your top three playlist right now?
1: By the way, you know, and you know, probably know this, but that, if you're a string player, you probably don't know this, but that Barber adagio string was transcribed by Barber for choir, so it's the Agnes Dei, and it's sensational. It's oh. chillingly beautiful.
0: I did not know that, so that's definitely number 2 that I'm bringing home from this uh interview. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it
1: either. I did not know that. I mean, th- these are the kinds of things um well, Brahms, I got into Brahms. He was uh, did one of my episodes was on Brahms. I uh-huh. love that.
0: Um well, one of, another one of my favorite recordings is the uh the sextet with Primrose and Heifetz together. Sure. Good old well, RCA Blue Label recording. Yeah, I know them. I know them very well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and I just finished Mozart, which you know, you, all of these composers deserve you know much more time than I'm giving them. But I, I give a smattering of their styles. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm working on Beethoven now, but with Mozart, you know, it's maybe it was a couple of arias from Magic Flute, the two Papageno arias, mm-hmm. the Papageno aria and the Papageno Papagena aria, right? With Thomas kwastoff you oh. know, I want you to I want you to listen to this. Okay, um, it's so incredible. I don't know if you know Thomas Kostov, you know who I he is. I don't know his hi, at all. He's a great German baritone. Um, he's a thalidomide child, so he was born very short. Uh-huh. He has, um, he doesn't have arms. Oh, no. He has fingers coming out of his shoulders. Uh, he has one lung. He has no knees. And he's got one of the world's greatest vocal sounds you'll ever hear. Wow. He's not singing anymore, but he lives in Berlin. I think he still teaches. He does jazz. He can sound just like Louis Armstrong or he can sound he does trading fours with Bobby McFerrin. I mean, he's an all-star. So, once you get past his looks, the man himself, I've got to know him at the Oregon Bach Festival. Uh-huh. Helmut really brought him there. Oh. And we became really, really good friends. Mm-hmm. He's got a fantastic sense of humor. He's a, a really a kick to be around. And um he's he, his brain is so wonderful to just—he'll he'll put you on at any time.
0: Now I know I'm wondering, so I'm imagining many of our listens listeners are. How do you spell his last name? Okay, it's Q U A
1: S Quast T H O F F Thomas kostoff
0: Quastoff.
1: The you—I'm sure you absolutely know intimately the Papageno Papageno aria. Uh, Sylvia uh, Schwartz, I think, is the his... Uh, Papagena? Yeah. Uh, he starts it off like, you know, Pah. just so, it's like, nothing's going to happen here. <laughs> and then he sees her. And then his eyes come up to life. And it's just like they, they're just so incredibly happy together. Mm-hmm. So that's Thomas Kostov. And so this... I didn't know where this was going to start, I, I know I wanted to hear Mozart arias, I, I, you know, I've loved playing in the Mozart operas, um, and there it was, there was Thomas, He so wow. Then Jeff Kahane playing a Mozart piano concerto, mm-hmm. uh, some chamber music pieces that I really love, uh, Mozart Symphony Number no. 29, so you get to see what a man has done in 35 years of his life and you compare your own life, what you did in thirty-five years, and say, "Holy oh, my God!" Right? You know, who are these monsters? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Has this time uh, uh, given you the opportunity to really focus on what's on your bucket list as a as a conductor? What is? What are you hungry to conduct? In, something you've never done before, and maybe always wanted a reason.
1: Oh, I think uh, Mahler Second would be a great one. Uh, I've always wanted to conduct that. I'd like to do the Mahler Five again. I really love Mahler Five very much. Uh, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra is one of my very, very favorite pieces in the whole world. Conducted a couple of times. Um, you know, there's just so many great pieces out there. Prokofiev Symphonies and Sibelius Violin Concerto. I, I mean, you know, th- anything that gets my blood going you know, right. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm out of control. My molecules go out of control with great music. There's and something about it.
0: Are we allowed to ask, what is the one piece that you don't need to ever conduct again?
1: <laughs> Finlandia.
0: <laughs> all right, there it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, folks, all my Finnish friends.
1: Uh, I, I never conducted it. and uh, oh, oh, the other. It's just that I played it a lot when I was a kid. Right. It got overplayed. Yeah. Same thing, uh, Symphony in D by... Um, Oh, my gosh, the Franck Symphony in D oh, minor. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. it's too repetitive to me.
0: And uh, Paul Woodring brought me this today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> what is it? Caesar? I'm looking at a, C- oh. a CD. It uh, says our Franck Symphony in D minor. No that's way. Crazy. Hi, Paul. <laughs>
1: well, there you go. See, there's something for everybody. Uh, um, and people love that piece. I mean, people just love that piece.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how many times that's uh, come up for me. As and I'm not really uh, often in, in an orchestral a solely orchestral situation but that seems to come up quite a bit you've given us so many points of wisdom that I, I can imagine a, a number of different uh, potential career positions could could glean uh, from uh, let's let's uh, close focusing back on what would what would your advice be to the young conductor the young aspiring conductor at the beginning of his career and how do we what would you say to that to that to that young Michael Novak who all the things that you couldn't imagine would have unfolded.
1: Well, I think, number one, uh, be patient. You have to be patient. And all the talent in the world uh, doesn't mean anything if you don't take the time to really study properly. So you have to learn how to learn. And this is um, something that I've talked to a lot of my colleagues who teach at universities. They have a hard time teaching students there because we, everything is so quick with the computers now. -hmm. You can do anything in seconds, but you can't play the French horn in seconds or the violin or the piano. You really have to learn how to sit down and be patient. Same thing with studying scores. There's there's no way out of it. I mean, I wish there were an easy way to. uh, I I would pray I had a photographic memory. Mm -hmm. And I've known people that have photographic memories. And, you know, yeah, they can conduct like Dudamel. How can all this stuff from memory? Mahler 9. And get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> all the Mahler symphonies from memory yeah it's a
0: grueling task isn't it oh and
1: it's it, oh, you you know i mean i that's why I always use a score i, I don't need the score, but I always mm. have it there because i'm I don't want to
0: be in the way you got to plan for that emergency too
1: well that's the other thing I've seen it too many times where you know somebody thought they had the thing, and uh the score memorized, and the clarinet comes in too early, and all of a sudden they're thrown now, yeah, so you know <laughs> it's interesting i've Been a part of those occasions where it's almost funny, but not really funny. Mm -hmm. But anyway, going back to I would say, um, love the learning process, enjoy it. You you have the most incredible world in front of you of of music. I mean, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like music. Right. And to see the work that, look at the manuscripts if you can to see what Bach's handwriting looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some of Beethoven's handwriting. I can't read it. Craig Russell took a class in learning how to read his writing, yeah, his music notation. It's like really, well, that was a shortcut for this. Oh. I feel
0: like we could talk an hour about what you what you glean from learning music reading it from the composer's hand you know and and even once you've known it starting off from scratch from that point there's all different ways you can go but uh, for now Michael Novak you have given us such a wonderful insight to your career and your path and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to share this intimate portrait with our listeners I'm
1: happy to be with you thank you so much
0: Thanks for joining us today. You can learn more about Michael Novak and the various projects he's working on at orchestranovo.org and the Santa Maria Philharmonic's website, smphilharmonic.org. If you found this content insightful, please subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform. Funded by the Arts Collaborative, this podcast was produced on-site at the studios of the San Luis Obispo County Office of Education. For more information, visit us at www.slocoarts.org. That's S-L-O-C-O-E-A-R-T-S dot org.